if you don't know much about me, I'm the creative director here at One Chapel. So the videos that we do, the camera team that we have here, uh, big hand to the camera team and the tech team and everyone else who makes all that happen. The online service that we do, One Chapel Online, uh, on, all the, on Facebook, on One Chapel Online, YouTube. Good morning, online friends. And so uh, I oversee all of that. Uh, I just love creative stuff. I love telling stories. Uh, I have my background in film and screenwriting, and so I've studied a lot of that because what I believe fundamentally is I have good news. As believers, we have the greatest story ever told. We have God working in our lives, and so I love telling those stories and shaping those stories. And uh, I'm also a big movie geek. I kind of watch a lot of movies, and uh, I think about a lot. And so I've been watching a lot of Christmas movies with my family. And there's this idea that comes up over and over again in Christmas movies. And it's the idea of, it's a Christmas miracle. Anyone heard that phrase over the last month? It's a Christmas miracle in any movies? Okay, it's a Christmas miracle. I've, you know, I've never watched a Hallmark movie, but in my mind what happens is it's like, a rough country guy, and then a city business girl, and then they're totally wrong for each other, yet they're totally right. And so then at the perfect moment, they realize like, oh, I love you, I love you, snow falls, and then a little girl in a reindeer sweater looks up and says, it's a Christmas miracle. And so <laughs> I have no idea if that's what happens, but in my mind, that's what happens in those movies. Um, pretty, I'm pretty close, I think. And so... Uh, and so I've heard this phrase over and over again. And here's the thing. I have experienced a lot of things in my life. I have four daughters, four amazing daughters. I have an amazing wife. I've been to four different continents. I've uh, written books. I've written screenplays. I've gone on so many adventures. I've experienced so many things. But I have never in my whole life experienced a Christmas miracle until a week ago last Thursday. I experienced, okay. <laughs> You're like, you're clicking on this. You're like, all right, I'm going to follow this article. What's going to happen? And so I'm going to tell you the story today of a Christmas miracle that happened in my life. And then I want to break down what, what scripture says about Christmas miracles. And so kind of this like secular idea, I want to say, okay, what is actually sacred about this? And what, is Christ, what does scripture say about this? So if you follow along with me today, just take a deep breath, breathe in, breathe out, and let's pray. Lord Jesus... I thank you this morning for each and every soul here, and I just pray for our hearts, for our minds, Lord, that uh, as we share and as we open the scriptures, that you'd speak to each and every one of us, that your word and your story would be alive in our hearts, and you'd be with us in this season. In your holy name, amen. So here's my story of a Christmas miracle. I, um, as I said before, love film, love screenwriting. Uh, when pandemic hit, I thought, okay, I've written some books, written some screenplays, but I've just in my life, haven't been able to do a lot of creative stuff and really felt stirred, really felt drawn to write this story. And so I started working on it uh, when pandemic hit. I actually put it on the shelf. And then this fall, I thought, you know what? I'm going to pick it up again, and I'm going to start going for it, and I'm going to start working on it. I found an amazing screenwriter uh, here in Austin that I started working with and working with a cohort. And I was real, like, it was my big goal. I was like, okay, two years I've been working on this story, but I'm going to really work morning and night and dial this thing in because I felt stirred about writing this story. So I was there, I was working on it, and I was actually supposed to turn it in on Tuesday night. It was time to turn it in, uh, and so it was finally there. 
Well, on that Tuesday morning, I was going up. We were having a one-chapel staff Christmas party. I had to go. I was buying a gift, and then I ran into Target, and then I ran back out, uh, and I was like, oh, shoot, I forgot my gift bag. And so I ran back in real quick, bought a gift bag, came back out, drove up here to the church. Everyone's in, like, Christmas gear. We're having such a fun time. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go into my... uh, car real quick and get my laptop. I opened my door and my car and then I looked and my bag was gone, totally gone. And I was like, oh no, no. And the first thing that went in my mind was, I was like, that screenplay, I didn't back it up. Not once, not one time. Everything in my life is cloud-based. And so everything is like Google Docs and Frame and everything lives on Dropbox. Everything is cloud-based except for this program that I have final draft. So that screenplay was not backed up and my heart sunk. And so then I go to find my iPhone, and I'm standing in the parking lot right out there. I go to find my iPhone. I have a MacBook, and it shows that my laptop is in Mueller. And so I'm like, caca. (laughs) And so all of a sudden, I just go, I get in the car, and I drive up to Mueller, and I get there, and I'm just in this apartment complex in Mueller, 500 apartments, and I'm standing there with my phone in in the parking lot, just looking around, and I was like, does that look like a guy who would steal a laptop? (laughs) So I'm just judging everyone. Please pray for me. So I'm there, and I'm just looking. There's like 500 apartments, and I'm like, I don't know. And so I called 311, and I was like, hey, uh, can can you send an officer out here, whatever else? And they're like, no, but you can file a report, and we will get a detective right on it, sir. And so I was like, like, okay, great. And so I went, I filed the report, that sort of thing. And so then all of a sudden, I'm tracking my laptop that is going all over town. It, it ends up in some apartments by Oltorf. I'm seeing it go up and down I-35. I'm just watching as it goes everywhere. And then finally it goes and it ends up in a neighborhood at a house. And so I go and I get, are you tracking with me? I go and I get in the car and I drive into this neighborhood. And with a, with, find my like iPhone, find my MacBook. One thing is, it only, with an iPhone, it tracks all the time. With a MacBook, only when it's open will it track the location. So all of a sudden, it would like, boop, and appear in a different location. I'm just like obsessively following it. So it ends up in this neighborhood. And then I go, and then I'm like, there's a, I can't spot exactly where it is. And so I was like, okay, how do I track it down? So I came up with an idea. I was like, I'm going to take a picture of every car that's kind of around where it could be, and then I'm gonna start following it around and see which car is the common denominator, and I'm gonna track this laptop down, and I'm gonna find it. Pretty smart, Detective Rob, right. (laughs) And so that was going on. I told Tim DeMay about everything that has happened, and he's like, you know what? I'm gonna put this on the One Chapel General channel and just have everyone pray with you, Rob. Have everyone praying for you? Sarah was like, let's pray for this, let's pray for a miracle, and you know what I thought? I don't want to pray for this. I don't want to pray for this because God's not going to answer my prayer. And I just don't want to feel disappointment in God this Christmas season. So I didn't say that out loud, but if I'm being totally honest and I'm in church, so I'm going to be totally honest with you, that was my thought. I was like, I don't want disappointment with God this Christmas. But Tim did it anyway. He put it on Slack and everyone's like, we're praying for you, Rob. How's the laptop going? And I was like, I I don't know. But But for me, I didn't believe God was going to do a miracle. Well, my laptop went back to some apartments, and then I found it went back to this uh, house again. And so now it had been three days, and I'm looking, and I was like, all right, it's been three days. My computer is, like, compromised. They can be hacking into it. It has all my information, so I was like, I should erase it. That's the safest thing to do It's just totally erase it. It's going to wipe out the screenplay, but that's the safest thing to do. And I felt God say, I I felt this voice say, give it till the end of today, 
and see what happens. And so I was like, okay. So I, get, I see this in this house, and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go and knock on every house in the neighborhood, knock on every door. And so I'm like, I go in my closet, and I was like, I need my toughest outfit to go and do this mission. I was like, I need my toughest outfit. But I mean, look at me. Like, I don't have tough clothes. I just, I try, I just be like, I'm tough. It just wouldn't work. And so I was just like, you know what? I didn't care what I was wearing. I just need to get over there. So I'm still in shorts. I'm in flip-flops. It's, you know, and so I just drive over there. And so I go and I find the house that it's at. And, I, and I, as I was on the way over there, I was just praying and I was thinking. And I was like, okay, I'm going to offer $500 for my laptop back. And I felt, I felt this voice. I felt God saying, you need to offer $1,000. And so I thought, okay. I'm gonna offer $1,000 for my laptop back. So I go and I ring on this doorbell. It's got one of those rings, you know, with the camera and the voice. So I ring on the doorbell and someone says, hello, what's this pertaining to? And I was like, hey, my phone says your laptop is right in there. And so I'm gonna, I need you to come out and uh, I'm offering $1,000, no questions asked, no police report, just give me my laptop back. And they're like, I don't know anything about it. And he hangs up. And then I was like, okay, well, I'm calling 911 this time and I'm getting him over. So I call 911. I call the police and I say, hey, you need to come over because I'm going to break into this guy's house. And so, uh, so I'm going to escalate this whole situation if I don't get police support over here. I called 311. Those guys don't care. I'm going to the big dogs, 911, and I need some police support back up. This is Detective Rob over. <laughs> and so they're like, all right, sir, we will get a car there right away. And so I go, I wait for two hours in front of this house for two hours and I'm just waiting like, okay, come on, please come. And then finally I, I called him back and I was like, hey, 911, it's Rob again. Uh, just want to make sure you have the address right. And they're like, yes, sir, we have it. And I was like, okay, I'll be in touch if there's any updates on the case. And then I hang up. I go and as I'm sitting there for two hours, finally I see this lady come out, the next door neighbor comes out and she starts talking with another next door neighbor and he's wearing a Denver Broncos t-shirt. And I thought like, oh, that's, I'm from Colorado, that's a sign. And I thought, he's wearing a Denver Broncos t-shirt. That is a man who knows pain and suffering. <laughs> I'm gonna go and talk to that man. And so then I go, and I go to the people, and then I say, hey, have you seen, see this device right here? Have you seen this phone at all? And the lady's like, uh, I was like, do you know who your neighbor is? Do you know if he's sketchy, anything about him? And then she's like, oh, that's Steve. And I was like, well, what do you know about Steve? And she's like, well, he's a quadriplegic. And I was like, probably not Steve. <laughs> and so then at that moment, I felt so bad. And I thought, this is what happens, you guys. When something bad happens to you, all of a sudden it puts your filter on and it's like everyone else is a villain. Everyone else is a criminal. And that's what happens when you get hurt. And so I felt really convicted about how I was thinking about this guy. And so I was just broken. I said, hey, well, I just want to let you know. I, I told Steve this, and I'll tell you. I'm offering $1,000 for anyone who knows where my laptop is. No questions asked. I was like, do you know where it is? And she's like, well, my nephew has some friends that, you know, they, they get into trouble. And I was like, well, I'll offer $1,000 if they know anything about my laptop. I can get it back. And she's like, you're not paying $1,000. I'm going in there kicking butt and bringing your laptop back out here. <laughs> Except for she didn't say butt. <laughs> And so she goes, she goes inside the house and then, you know, and this is a lady, I mean, she's a tough lady. This is a lady who's like lived some life, I can tell. And so she goes, she comes back out on speakerphone and she's like talking to her nephew and she's like, okay, my nephew knows where your laptop is. 
And I was like, oh yeah, where is it? And she's like, it is in a dumpster behind Valero off William Cannon and I-35. And so I was like, I was like, all right. And so I, was, I get in the car and then all of a sudden I'm driving over to William Cannon I-35. I get there and there's not one, but two different dumpsters. So I get in, I open the, one of the dumpsters, I jump in. Remember, I'm still wearing shorts and flip-flops. And so I start digging through nacho cheese, cherry Coke juice, everything else. And in my head, I kept thinking like, oh, I'm gonna turn over a trash bag and there's a laptop. And so I open it up, no laptop. And then I go, I climb in another dumpster. I'm digging through again, no laptop. I get out and I tell that lady, I was like, there's nothing here. And she's like, well, my sister knows where it is. She is on her way. And so I was like, okay. So all of a sudden, a car comes up, and I know which car it is because it's one of the cars that I'd taken a picture of. And so she, I know, woo. And so she went. So she drives up, and then she gets out of the car, and then she goes, she walks straight past me, and then she goes, opens a door, she looks, uh, there's a third dumpster that I didn't know about behind this gate. She opens the door to the third dumpster walks back out and is carrying the laptop in her hands. And she's crying and she's like, I've got, I've got, I'm on probation. If some, like, like uh, this, my nephew's friend stole it when I re- found out it was hot property. I said, we can't have it. You just gotta get rid of it. I'm so sorry of all that I've put you through. And she's crying, I'm crying. And I was like, you don't understand. You are an angel and you have given me the first ever Christmas miracle of my life. And there in the Valero parking lot, she hugs me, I hug her, we're crying. I'm covered in nacho cheese. Everyone around starts cheering. uh, That didn't happen, but it was just, (laughs) it was the closest I'll probably ever get to the end of a Hallmark movie in my life. It was a true Christmas miracle. And as I've reflected on this story, I think there are four, everyone say four. I think there are four elements of a Christmas miracle that I wanna share about this morning actually from scripture that hit out my story. The first thing that really jumped out to me through this story is number one, just because we doubt, that doesn't mean God's not working. Just because we doubt, that doesn't mean God's not working. And we see this in scripture. The Gospel of Luke begins, you probably know this, begins with an angel coming and announcing the birth of a baby. And who is that baby? Everyone shout it out. Jesus. No. <laughs> the first angel that the Gospel of Luke begins with, read your Bible, people, one year Bible, boy, and next year you're going to get this right. Luke, Luke, Luke 1, verse 11 says this, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing right at the side of an altar incense. When Zacharias saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. So pause right here. Angels must be terrifying because they are freaking everyone out. But the angel said to him in verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zachariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you were to call him, not Jesus, John. <laughs> He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many to the people of Israel, to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts and parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of righteousness to make ready a people prepared for the Lord." Amazing. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man 
and my wife as well along in years. Then the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent. I picture this like Gandalf, like standing over Frodo. I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent, and you will not be able to speak until the day it happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to him. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but he remained unable to speak. Zechariah was not able to speak again until John was born. And what people know about Zechariah, the first thing, if you ask most people, most scholars, first thing that comes to mind is Zechariah is the one who doubted God, doubted the angel, and therefore God took his voice away. That doubt defined him. And the tragedy was he couldn't hear the message at first. He will bring back my people to Israel, the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteousness. He's given this big pronunciation, this big proclamation, but Zechariah couldn't see it. But here's the good news. Because Zechariah doubted, was John the Baptist not born? Did John the Baptist not do all these things? No, Zechariah doubted. Zechariah did not believe, but God worked anyway. Okay? His doubt did not change the story. God was still at work. So when Tim asked, like, hey, can I put it on Slack? Well, can other people pray? My real answer was like, my thought was like, no, I don't want that happening. I had too much doubt. I was like, God doesn't care about a little laptop. There are bigger, more important things going on. My doubt was there. But listen, one chapel, I'm telling you, I'm standing here. God was working in my simple, humble story. God was still at work. God was still faithful, despite my doubt. And there's some of you here today who have doubt in your own story. You have doubt if God's still working. You have doubt if God still cares. And I'm looking you in the eye, and I promise you, God is still working in your story, even if you don't believe he is. You see, we see this in scripture as well. You know, in Mark 9, chapter, uh, verse 23, it says, everything is possible for one who believes. Jesus is about to heal a little boy. And immediately the boy's father says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And so that real tension is there. And I felt that in my, this own story, like I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. And so even as that man was wrestling with this unbelief, God was still at work in this story. So I felt real doubt, but everyone else was praying and standing on my side. Idea number two is this. Miracles often follow obedience. Miracles often follow obedience. You see, a lot of times what we want is the miracle, but look at this. The birth of Jesus foretold. Luke 2, 26 says this. In the month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, so this is right after the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary Lou was greatly troubled at his words and wondering what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Jesus was coming. You guys were sort of right. <laughs> he will be great, and he will be called the Son of Most High. 
The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How can this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So unlike Zachariah, Mary goes and she accepts it. There's still some doubt. She's still not sure how can this be. But she goes, she hears this word, and she's like, okay, I accept this. I'm going to follow through with this. Joseph also goes, and he's there. He's ready to leave Mary. She tells him that she's pregnant. He's ready to leave. But then we go on to Matthew 120, and it says this. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Take Mary home as your wife. And then we cut ahead to verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Joseph listened and obeyed. So you see in Mary, you see obedience. You see in Joseph, you see obedience. Pastor Ross talked last week about the three wise men who went and they followed that star for two years. They were following and following and following and they were following in obedience. So a lot of times what we want is we want that miracle to happen. We pray, Lord, where can that miracle happen? We pray, where can I get my miracle? But I wonder if the better prayer is this, where can I be faithful and obedient? Where can I be faithful and obedient? So I don't know what you're facing this holiday season, but I think sometimes we just want the result versus the process. And if you look at scripture, these miracles, it wasn't like he said these things and then boom, it came and happened. It was like, hey, this is going to happen. You have been promised things, one chapel, just like the people in scripture were. God has promised you things, but it's not going to happen overnight. It's gonna take a long process of obedience to follow out what God has in your life. And so as he's spoken these things to you, don't think they're gonna happen right away. What you should ask and think about is like, okay, Lord, this Christmas season, there is something that I need. I desperately want it, but I know what you have for me. So God, how can I be faithful and how can I be obedient to you right now today? Point number three is this. Sometimes you are the angel. Sometimes you are the angel. Let's go back to the gospel of Luke. Luke 2, 6, and 7, when they were there, the time, uh, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And so what is interesting about this is we don't know how Mary feels in this moment. It's a lot of describing what they were doing, but we don't know what's in her head. We don't know what she's thinking. We don't know what she's feeling. It tells us in the first part what she's thinking, and it'll tell us later what she's thinking, but we don't know... If what she's thinking right now. And part of what I wonder is after the baby was born, did she think, this was it? Did I really hear from God? Is he really hearing my story? I know as a parent, like firstborn baby, like after that baby comes, you feel just so vulnerable. I remember when Juliana was born, just standing there in the hospital and we had never, you know, had a baby before and we're there and then the doctors like hands me some scissors. I don't know why they do this. And they're like, hey, do you want to like cut the umbilical cord? And I'm like a mess emotionally. And I was like, oh man, I wasn't trained in umbilical cord cutting. Like, I don't know what to do in this moment. And so he gave me these like scissors and I'm like holding it and I'm like, 
any Audi, any Audi, like, (laughs) you'll get that on the way home. And then uh, I go and I finally like cut the umbilical cord and it's kind of like cutting through Twizzlers wrapped in bacon grease. Like it's this really like, (laughs) sometimes I just say things and I don't know what I'm saying. (laughs) Anyway, it's weird. My point, my point is, birth. It's weird. You're vulnerable. Like everything feels weird. And I imagine how Mary and Joseph felt. I mean, we had doctors, we had nurses, we had machines, we had a team. They had a stable. They had a manger. They had no support. They had nothing there. They were completely and utterly alone. And I wonder in that time, if they were asking, is God really with us? Is God really here? Did we hear right? That's why I love later in the chapter. The shepherds are out there, they're tending flock. And then Luke 2, 13 says this. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven. On earth, peace to those whose favor rests. When the angel left them and gone into heaven, then the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about the child. And all who heard were amazed at what the shepherd said to him. But Mary treasured all these things up and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So what do we know about this moment? Well, it tells us a lot, but the first part, we don't know what Mary's thinking and feeling, but in Luke 2.19, it says, Mary treasured all these things. All what things? The shepherds coming out of nowhere. How would they possibly know it was God without an angel coming? And so they're in the stable. No one knows them. They're anonymous. No one knows they're there. And then miraculously, these shepherds come and say, no, that is God amongst us. And they bow and they worship and they tell everyone else. And like Mary wasn't visited by an angel in the stable. Jesus wasn't visited by angels there. Instead, God used normal, the lowliest of people, normal people just like you and me to bring comfort and peace to Mary. And God wants to use you in someone else's story. Sometimes we're so focused on our own miracle, our own crisis, our own thing going on. You may not get your miracle this Christmas. I don't know what you're hoping for, but it may not come right away. But I promise you this, if you're willing to, God will use you in someone else's story. I know this because in my story there, I was like standing so vulnerable outside that house and this woman was out there and I went and I just begged her like, please, please, will you help me? And she went and she helped me all the way through and she looked me in the eye and she said, I promise you, I won't sleep until we find your laptop. You are gonna get your laptop back today. I was a complete stranger to her. I will probably never meet her again. We're going to give her something nice for Christmas. And I've I've sent her all sorts of thank yous and everything else. But she's going to go and her life will go on. She'll have her own problems. I don't know what she's facing right now. I don't know what difficulties. I don't know what struggles. But I know this 40 years from now, 50 years from now, I will always remember what she did for me on that Thursday. I'll never forget it. She has impacted my life forever. And I don't even know where she stands with God, but I know this. God used her. And I know this, God wants to use you to impact someone else's story. And it may be a moment where it just comes to you and you don't even know what's happening, but I encourage you, one chapel, let's be people of the spirit. Let's be people who lean into the God and just open up your hands and ask the simple question this Christmas. God, how can you use me? Maybe you're supposed to be an angel in someone else's stories. 
God wants to use you to impact other people's stories. God wants to use you that way. Okay, number four is this. Christmas miracle stories are actually resurrection stories. Christmas miracle stories are actually resurrection stories. And I'm not just saying this, the ones in the Bible, I'm saying the ones deep in culture. Charles Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol. And if you've, you know, anyone seen Christmas Carol Scrooge, you know that, have you watched Scrooge this year, some version? There's like 390 versions of Scrooge. You've probably watched six of them, you know. Very, very famous story. But Scrooge is a resurrection story. It's a literal resurrection story. He goes and he's visited by how many ghosts, how many angels? Three, pretty biblical number. By the way, my laptop was gone for three days. My laptop was gone for three days, okay? And so, uh, but he is visited by three angels. On the third angel, who's that angel? Uh, death, he actually goes and goes down into his own grave. He goes down and then all of a sudden he comes up born again and he is changed forever. He has a new spirit. He has a new perspective. He has a new creation. And that resurrection that happens in him changes how he looks at Tiny Tim, Bob Cratchit, his nephew. Everyone is changed because of that resurrection that happened in Scrooge's life. We celebrate this story all the time, but do we see what's really going on there? It's a wonderful life. Amazing movie. If you haven't seen it, you need to watch it this Christmas. This powerful story of this life, this man who is un the opposite of Scrooge, who's selfless, who does the right thing over and over and over again. He's like, okay, no good, indeed, no good deed goes unpunished. He keeps doing the right thing. His whole life falls apart, and he stands on a bridge ready to take his own life. And that's when an angel comes to him and says, no, George, there's more going on to your life than you think. And he wakes up, you know, he kind of wakes up, sees the power of his life, and he gets home, and just like the shepherds around the manger, his friends, his family are there, and they're singing the song, and every time a bell rings, the angel gets swings, and it's so sweet, and everything else. But what we see is a resurrection that happens in George Bailey's life. He thought, what would life be like if I was never been born? My life has no hope. My life has no purpose. And that movie says, no, your life is a purpose. There is power in your life. And these are... These are secular stories, but they carry this resurrection message within them. In Die Hard, John McClane... <laughs> I'm not going to talk about Die Hard. This is church. You, <laughs> you should have seen your face. One guy was like, I'm leaving. Like this. <laughs> All right, I'm not going to talk about Die Hard, but <laughs> I'm just telling you, watch with this lens on that Christmas stories... Uh, miracle stories are resurrection stories. And if you look with that perspective, you will see resurrection again and again and again this Christmas season. And so even let's go back to Luke chapter one, the very beginning of Zechariah. Zechariah is known for losing his voice. That's the defining feature about him. And he was embarrassed. And to be honest, I was embarrassed with my whole story too. I was, as I was driving around for those three days, I was thinking, Rob, how did you not back this up? You know better to, than to not back this up. Rob, how did you not lock your car? You know better than to not lock your car. You're sitting here today as a result of your own mistakes, and that's why you're sitting here. And the reality is sometimes we are, but God is bigger than our mistakes. And Zechariah lost his voice as a result of his own doubt, but that wasn't the last word in the story. Read Luke 1, 76. The, very, the way the gospel of Luke, or the very first chapter of Luke begins, it was with Zechariah. He gets his voice back, 
And he says this, and you, my child, will be called prophet of the most high, for you will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. What I love about the story of Zechariah is he loses his voice for 40 days, but for 2,000 years, people have been hearing his voice and hearing his words because God gave him his voice back. One mistake, a series of mistakes do not have to define you and your life and your story. There's still resurrection power working in you, and it's here, right here this morning today. Christmas miracle stories are about facing death and heartache and waking up as a new creation with a new perspective. That's what Christmas miracles are. And so this morning, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you've been facing. Maybe you're filled with a lot of hope. We talked about that last week. Maybe that hope's been dashed. Maybe it's been bruised. Maybe it's been beat up. But I want to ask something this morning. If there's one thing I want to ask of you, I want to ask you to give yourself permission to believe in good. Give yourself permission to believe. Maybe like when you first believed in God. Maybe you've never really had faith in God. Give yourself permission to believe that God is on the throne, his word is true, and he is working here on earth, and he is working in your life. Give yourself permission to believe. Your story is still being written. And the other thing that I really learned, probably the biggest thing that I learned in this story, was that the reason I felt like such a fool when it was all over is because everyone else had faith. Everyone else was praying and they had faith. And the truth is, I stand up here, I pray for different people. It is so easy for me to have faith that God's working in you, in your life, in your story. But sometimes the hardest place for me to believe that is in my own life and in my own story. So if you don't have enough faith to believe, then I invite you, invite others to stand with you. Maybe you need to invite others to stand with you. Maybe if something's going on, it feels too much, it feels overwhelming, and you're stuffing it down and burying it down, unearth it and say, hey, this is going on, this health diagnosis, this thing with my job, my marriage, my friendship, my finances. I'm facing a boulder, I don't know how to do it. Will you just pray with me this Christmas? Will you pray with me right now? Don't walk this alone. That's what I learned over this last week.